I'll go ahead and get started. Uh, let's, uh, let me go ahead and, and pray. Um, I'm sure I don't do it near enough. Um, anyway, Father, uh, thank you for this day um, that you have made. Help us to rejoice and be glad in it. If we can't rejoice in our circumstances, help us to rejoice in your salvation. Um, help us to understand the, both the mystery, the wonder, and then the factuality of your incarnation in Jesus Christ. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, there are said to be two foundational mysteries of the Christian faith. And by mystery, well, it's become too colloquial. This does not mean either a puzzle to be figured out or a profound obfuscation that actually avoids orthodoxy. That's not what mystery means. Uh, mystery means that there are two things that explain everything else that themselves are, well, in the case of the Trinity, impossible to explain, though it can be described, and the Incarnation, which is very difficult to explain, but again is not obscure. So the claim that Jesus is divine, that he is God incarnate, has been polarizing in a way that the claim that Buddha was enlightened, for example, has never been. It's one thing to say that here is a wise man whose wisdom can make us better men. Quite another claim to say here is a man who is God in flesh and your eternal destiny depends on your relationship with him. So you really cannot do with Jesus what you will like maybe you can do with Buddha uh, to a lesser extent Muhammad. Uh, the Roman Catholic philosopher Peter Kreeft said this about that. Christians ought to realize how difficult, how scandalous, how objectionable, how apparently unbelievable and absurd this doctrine of the incarnation is bound to appear to others. They ought to realize this for two reasons. For apologetic purposes, to understand the state of mind of prospective converts. It, it is a scandal. Jesus is God uniquely. He's not just another wise man. And then the second thing, and for purposes of appreciating their own belief in all its astounding character, something that dulls with familiarity. If Jesus is not divine that is, God incarnate, nothing else distinctive in the Christian faith can be made sense of. Not the Trinity, nor the atonement, nor justification, forgiveness, and eternal life by belief in Jesus' name. So it's important that we understand it and that we understand that it's true. Uh, and not, not, again, in a metaphorical way. So I'm going to start. I'm, I'm going to, again, follow the textbook pretty, pretty closely here. I'm going to add a few things, but that's about it. Um, so I want to talk about the testimony of the New Testament. Uh, I'll talk about the skeptical interpretation in a while, but we've already looked at uh, the nature of the New Testament, uh, historical reliability, I focused on the Gospels, um, and, and then the dating Paul is important because he is early, and even, I'll say liberal scholars will say Paul is very early. Some people would date him down to even 45, 
A.D. And then by 65, he, he was dead, so he didn't write anything after that that we're aware of. I'm not sure there's any even apocryphal New Testament literature claiming to be from Paul. So Paul, it's been said that Paul's Christology is somewhat low. He doesn't really exalt Christ. He doesn't understand Christ as divine. And this is the case only if you pick and choose what you want to believe about Paul and pick and choose what you want to believe that he actually wrote. If you take the entire Pauline corpus, he actually had quite a high Christology, and I'll, I'll read part of that in a, in a minute. So he has an early creedal formula. He's obviously repeating something he heard, that Jesus is Lord in 1 Corinthians and in Philippians. Second, he's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is already highly exalted. doesn't necessarily say Christ is God, but then again, he's going to say that flat out. The, there's an alternate translation of Romans 9, 5. Um, in most translations, it'll say, Christ, who is God above all. In some translations, it'll be Christ... And then, God above all be praised. There is no such alternate translation in Titus 2.13 where he speaks of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. And so, this is, that's pretty much exalted. But then, he is also described as perfectly sinless. And this is ascribed in, in biblical terms only to God himself. Uh, no one else on earth is righteous, no, not a single one, in Paul's own words. He is eternally pre-existent in Philippians 2.6. That means he existed as the eternal Son of God, the Logos, the Word. Um, it, it, I taught high school students doctrine for a while, and that's, that's, a, that's a fun thing to do. And I always had to make sure they understood that Jesus was a historical personage. Jesus was not, and then he was because he was born of the Virgin Mary. However, the eternal Lagos, the eternal Son of God, just was, is, and evermore shall be. The incarnation is a historical event. The preexistence of the Son of God is eternal. He created all things. This is reminiscent, and in Colossians 1, very reminiscent of John chapter 1, and I'm going to read some passages from that in just a moment. And then he is supreme over all creation. And I want to read Paul's uh, Christology here in Colossians chapter 1. This is Colossians chapter 1, 15... Through 19. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Um, it really should read first begotten because there could be a possible confusion, which, if you take it in context, isn't there. That Jesus Christ was somehow, that, that Christ, the eternal Logos, was somehow born. No, he is eternally begotten. 
For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. This is a reference to the resurrection. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And this is very exalted Christology, and the only way to avoid saying that the very earliest church uh, understood uh, Jesus Christ to be God is to deny that Paul actually wrote that. So that is an avenue some people will take. So we have very early, and I won't say no one, let's just say very few serious scholars doubt the early dates of Paul's letters. So here we have a very early indication that the church believed that Jesus Christ uh, was, is, and evermore shall be God incarnate. By the way, that's a very important doctrinal thing that I'll, I'll just I'll digress here because I, I, when I teach the, the, the doctrine of last things, I point out that Jesus is coming back as Jesus Christ. He is eternally incarnate. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father, but he will return as Jesus Christ. The synoptic doctrines are uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called synoptic because they seem to be uh, in substantial parts based on Mark. So they have uh, some similarities in some sections. They aren't identical, but synoptic means seeing the same. So uh, I like to say that uh, the synoptic gospels don't so much... Uh, tell us about the divinity of Christ, but show us by what he did and how the disciples responded. So he is called the Son of God. Now, this could be like, okay, you're all sons of God, as it says in the Psalms, but in this case, it definitely is a title indicating preeminence and divinity. He's called the Son of God. He calls himself the Son of God in Luke chapter 22. He is acknowledged by the Father as his son at his baptism. Uh, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends and said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Um, at the transfiguration, uh, you again have the voice from heaven, This is my beloved son. So he is acknowledged by the Father as his son, which... Nobody else is in that sense in the entire New Testament. He forgives sins. Um, this was the first indication <clears throat> to the religious teachers and authorities that Jesus Christ was making an astonishing claim because when he says to the paralytic, uh, son, your sins are forgiven, the scribes and the Pharisees are taken aback. He said, well, who, what's he doing? Who can forgive sins but God alone? He's not forgiving a sin necessarily against him as a human being. He is forgiving that paralytic for the sins he's committed against God. 
And then his, he has supreme authority in heaven and earth in Matthew 28. All authority is given me in heaven and in earth. So do what I tell you to do and go out and spread the gospel. He is Lord over the law. Um, in Luke 6, it says, uh, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath which was a very important law. And in Matthew 5, we get that heightening of the law where he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm going to tell you what that really means. And if you even look at a woman with lust in your mind and on your heart, you have committed adultery. Same thing with murder. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. I tell you, what this truly means is that if you were even angry for no good reason, you've committed murder in your heart. And, of course, the proper response to that is, Lord, have mercy on us. He is worshipped, and he receives that worship and doesn't deny it. Um, finally, in John's Gospel, uh, John is like... like I try and pen things down a little more. Um, I, I've seen all kinds of dates for, for John, and then I read an honest scholar who said, you really can't pen it down any better than this. So it's possible that it was written late in John's life. He lived to a ripe old age uh, in prison on the island of Patmos, so he, it could have been written as late as 95. On the other hand, he could have possibly had written it earlier, so somewhere between 60 and 95. Now, it is thought to be late because it does have a very high chrysology, but as I have pointed out, so does Paul. So he is identified and one with the Father. I and the Father are one. He is called the Son of God, as in the synoptics. He called God his Father. Uh, he even distinguishes, I am going to my father and your father, indicating there is a distinction in relationship. Yes, we can call God Father, but not in the same way we call, not in the same way Jesus Christ calls God his Father. He is called God in John 1 1. And I'll, I'll go ahead and pause there to read this very familiar passage that we all know. Uh, uh, John chapter 1. 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. I'm going to pause here for an anecdote until my wife starts looking at me and giving me a high sign. But I was, uh, when I was in college, uh, I had a lab partner. I say lab partner. We, we were in uh, automotives class, and we were tearing down a small engine as practice. And so we were, we were talking about uh, Jesus Christ. And uh, we, of course, I don't know if you're familiar with Jehovah's Witness, but they don't believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. And this is basically a continuation of the ancient heresy of Arianism. Um, and I pointed out to him two things, that in the New World Translation, which is the Jehovah's Witnesses translation of the New Testament, which is universally regarded as the worst Greek translation ever made of the New Testament, they have to deliberately alter the translation. So instead of, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the word was God, which every other Greek translation will have, a translation from the Greek, they, for no good reason, add the word a, the indefinite article, and the word was a God, small g. But then I pointed out to him that in the same passage, which I'll get to in a minute, uh, Thomas says to Jesus after he sees him subsequent to the resurrection, he worships him and says, my Lord and my God. But somehow the translators miss that. And, and I pointed this out to him, that this, this is, a, this is a, an act of worship. Jesus doesn't deny it. What do you think of that? And his response was, well, I have to go talk to my Bible study about that. Because there is no answer to it. Because sometimes, no matter how even you try and badly mangle the Word of God, somehow the truth can get through. And they do badly mangle the Word of God. Let me go ahead and finish John. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it or overcome it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural scent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now, that that would be enough, seriously to say that emphatically states the incarnation of God, but John decides to put a coda on that. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John, who was the beloved disciple, who probably knew Jesus, humanly speaking, more than anybody else, Um, has this very high and exalted Christology. So he's called God. He claims the divine name. John 8, 5a, Jesus says to, again, the Pharisees and the scribes, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you didn't know the background, which I'm sure most of you did, you would think, well, he's just saying, you know, I'm really, really, really old. But this is a reference back to Exodus 3 where Moses asked God to tell him his name. And God says, and it depends on how you interpret it, uh, I am. That's my name. And that the Jews understand that he was making an identification, that Jesus was making making an identification between himself and the I am. They then accused him of blasphemy for claiming to be God, which is clear in the text. And again, he is worshipped by uh, Thomas in John 20, 28, my Lord and my God, which is, is not an explanation like OMG. You know, this is, this is truly worship 
and Jesus regards it as so and accepts it as so. He is also perfectly sinless in John. He also created all things in John. And he bestows eternal life. That enough would be sufficient. But of course, John had much, much, much more. Uh, We receive eternal life, uh, justification, and forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And Jesus actually says, this is eternal life, to know him and the Father whom has sent Jesus Christ, that to know them is eternal life. All right. So the New Testament shows clearly that Jesus claimed to be divine and that the very first Christians accepted and announced this claim uh, from Paul onward to John at Patmos in Revelation. And I haven't even cited... Uh, the book of Revelation, uh, or other parts of the New Testament, but they too testify to the fact that Jesus is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. There are, on the other hand, alternate explanations, and I'll just have to summarize, and I'm not going to be completely fair to the skeptics just as a matter of of saving time, but the standard skeptical account is that claims of Jesus' divinity and incarnation were legends invented by some of his followers after his death. Now, there's variations of that, but basically that's it. So how did it be that the whole church and some of his followers, not all of them, because supposedly the story is uh, in early Christianity, there were several views of Jesus Christ vying for preeminence. And the view that Jesus was God won preeminence and was imposed on the entire church at the Council of Nicaea, which had the Emperor Constantine's support. So, of course, they won. This is both a revision of the New Testament, which we have seen, but it's also a revision of history. This is not what happened. It wasn't an imposition. It was made necessary in some sense because of a heresy, but it was a heresy. Uh, Arianism was, was new, and usually new things are wrong when it comes to theology and Christianity. And other views were suppressed as heretical. And I don't really mention it, or do I mention it? Um, I think I do. So I'll come back to it. But there, uh, you may have heard of alternative gospels, extra-canonical writings like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, and things like that. Um, and some skeptical scholars like Dominic Cross and others use these as though they were sources equivalent and equal to the New Testament. And it used to be the case back in 19th century theology and New Testament studies that they had to date the Gospels and the New Testament writings really late. Like, I'm serious. Like they would put them into the middle and even late second century. Uh, and again, I won't say nobody believes this anymore because there are people who believe that Elvis and Tupac are alive. But as, as a matter of fact, the, the consensus of New Testament scholars, you could take the dates I've given you and add 10 or 20 years and you'd get the liberal version of this. But that still places all of the Gospels and all of the New Testament writings in the first century. No one believes that these later writings 
occur anywhere except the mid to late second century, which I'll actually come back to. So here's problems with the skeptical view. First of all, the New Testament Gospels, as we've seen, have shown to be reliable history. They do not have the character or style of legend or myth. They really don't. I realize this is a literary argument, but seriously, it does not read like the Lord of Rings. It, it just really doesn't. Now, I, I like the Lord of Rings, don't get me wrong. But it really reads like people who sat down, looked at things carefully, and said, well, this is what happened. This is how we interpret what happened. It does have theological interpretation, but it just it doesn't read like myth. I think C.S. Lewis it was who said, look, you know, I know myth. This is not myth. So the dates of the New Testament document do not allow sufficient time for a legend to develop. The, the latest date you can get is, and, and again it's considered somewhat liberal, is about 100 A.D. to either the Gospel or sometimes the book of Revelation. Uh, Paul's letters are quite early, and as we've seen, we have already have a developed incarnational Christology in Paul. Uh, only the claim of Jesus to be God makes sense of his trial and crucifixion. Why was he tried? Uh, the Romans didn't care about itinerant preachers. Uh, there is no evidence that he was trying to... He, Jesus himself assiduously avoided any sense of being a political disruption to the Romans. Uh, Pilate had him executed, not because he really thought it was a political threat, but as an expediency to placate and appease the Sanhedrin and the other Jewish leaders so as to control the populace. Uh, and yeah, Rome was perfectly happy to do stuff like that. That's the purpose of crucifixion, as far as the Romans was concerned, was crowd control. So why was he executed? Then he was executed because he was understood by the Sanhedrin, by the high priest Caiaphas and others to be making a claim to be the blessed Son of God. There is no evidence of any historical development of a legend or myth of Jesus' divinity. That's just a nice way of saying, well, skeptics just made this up. There's no evidence like there's evidence for Jesus actually claiming to be God for somebody in the early church inventing this legend. There, there's actually there's no historical documentation of this, certainly not in the first century. So likewise, there is no first century opposition of oppos- no first century evidence of opposition to a legend of Jesus' divinity in favor of an early view of Jesus as merely human. You would think there would have been a lot of back and forth. Like, no, he's divine. You don't get that until the fourth century. Uh, with the Arian controversy. Um, So the best explanation for that is in the first century, there was no controversy. Or you could go with the conspiracy theory, well, the church had all the documents that supported uh, alternative views of Jesus, rounded up and destroyed. Okay, some people will believe things quite in spite of the evidence. And I already mentioned this, all of the extra canonical writings are mid to late second century from about 120, 130 AD down to 180. And some show a marked dependence on the New Testament. And some of them are quite fanciful about 
some of the stories of Jesus, and some of them are very partial and incomplete because of the fragmentary nature of the manuscripts. Uh, and a lot of them are just collections of sayings. Um, that, those are an interesting study in themselves and how they really, really are themselves, those documents, fanciful reconstructions, and are not really reliable documents either about Jesus Christ or the early church. They are somewhat reliable about early uh, Gnosticism and proto-Gnosticism, but that's about it. So first, the, the final kind of nail in the coffin of these alternative theories that it was a myth is, is that uh, to sort of ironically reference, uh, Rudolf Bultmann uh, was a mid-20th century New Testament scholar who believed uh, that, that, that the biblical world, particularly in the New Testament, was a spirit and wonder world that we could no longer believe in in an age of electric lights and radios and, and advanced medical care. So he believed in demythologizing so that we could get down to the kernel of truth, which strongly resembled a form of existential philosophy. So I'm kind of fortunate I didn't become a Bultmanian because I kind of like existential philosophy. But first century Jews and Christians were not prone to believing myths. They were already demythologized. They were surrounded by pagan mythology, and they would have none of it. Jews were monotheists. All the early Christians were Jews. Well, that may be Luke. Um, I think, uh, what, 25, other than Luke and Acts, all the works of the New Testament were written by Jews. And, and to say that somehow they invented a myth of uh, a man being God uh, in some mythological fashion like the ancient Greeks or Romans flies in the face of our understanding of Jewish monotheism. The Apostle Peter even specifically denied that he and the disciples were following, quote, cleverly disguised myth. They claimed to be eyewitnesses of actual historical events. So that's why those reconstructions and those skeptical views of how it came to be the church's claim that Jesus was and is God came to be. And I don't think they hold water let me sum this up or uh, wrap it up by pointing to what has been called the trilemma. You know, Jesus is either a lunatic, liar, or the Lord. Uh, this was based from, well, it actually goes back to some early church fathers, too, at least a dilemma. Uh, and it's in a very erudite Anglican conversational form in Mere Christianity. And then I think it's, it's popular uh, resurgence probably came about through Josh McDowell's use of it and his, uh, well, he still uses it, uh, and his first version of evidence that demands a verdict. But it's been recognized that it's not sufficient. Uh, there's a quadrilemma, uh, which has been kind of forced into it be because of the claim that the New Testament accounts are legendary. And then uh, Peter Kreeft, who, a Roman Catholic philosopher I just quoted, has made it into a quintilemma. 
I think he calls it a quintilemma. So there's uh, Lord, liar, lunatic, legend, if the New Testament accounts are legendary. Then he adds guru. And this is the idea that Jesus was just sort of an enlightened spiritual teacher like Eastern pantheistic uh, gurus are. Um, even he dismisses this very quickly, though, so I'm not really even going to put it in the chart here. Uh, and the comeback to that is, yeah, Jesus was Jewish. Jews were not pantheists. So no, he was not a guru teaching enlightenment so that we all understand that we are God. Though that has actually been done, there's a book by Deepak Chopra, uh, a name you might want to forget, but he wrote a book called The Third Jesus. And in it, he presents Jesus as a guru. But uh, no actual scholars, historians, or uh, New Testament <clears throat> scholars actually take this view seriously. So I won't even deal with it. So the first one is that Jesus did not make this claim, that it was invented, as I showed before. So if he didn't make this claim, the early church invented the claim, and it is a legend. And I've already shown how this really doesn't fit the evidence. So he made the claim. Jesus actually made the claim. The church recognized it, and the church announced it, proclaimed it. Uh, and you see both things in the New Testament, both Jesus claiming it and the church announcing it. So the claim was false. So if the claim was false, Jesus was either a bad man and he was a liar. Well, that just doesn't really seem to fit with what we know about Jesus. Even Richard Dawkins, who's a very hostile and evangelical atheist, uh, says, and I, it was on a YouTube video, it was a debate, he even said Jesus was a good man. Not all atheists say Jesus was a good man. Bertrand Russell didn't have anything nice to say about Jesus. Um, but most of them will, yes. But all they will say is that, of course, he had good ethics, he was misguided, but he didn't really come across as a liar. And there is, again, no historical evidence whatsoever that indicates that Jesus ever deliberately falsified anything. So perhaps he uh, did not know the claim was false, and that makes him a, a, a lunatic, a, a mental patient, uh, delusions of grandeur, and uh, Messiah complexes are, you know, well-documented, so perhaps he was that. But you don't get that either. As a matter of fact, when you read the Gospels, you, you get an impression of Jesus as being the lo most lucid person you ever met. So lucid, you really don't want to be around him too much. He's very clear on what, what reality is and who you are. And people who will not deliberately obscure things for politeness and to not give offense are sometimes people you really don't want to be around. But he was lucid, clear-minded. He did not give the impression of being a lunatic based on taking the New Testament Gospels as historical documents, which I believe I've shown that you can do that. So the only alternative left is that the claim is true and that therefore he really is the Lord. He is the incarnate Son of God the Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of mankind. Uh, that's kind of where the book ends, but uh, I, I had a follow-up coda that I want to talk about. The reasonableness of the incarnation. And this is because, again, it is a mystery. You, you cannot, how can one 
being, one person, be God and man at the same time? Well, ultimately, there's, there's a mystery to that in the sense that you can't explain it, not because it's illogical or irrational, but because it supersedes human rationality. But that doesn't mean you can't describe it. So we could say that God is omnipotent, is able to do anything that is not logically impossible or self-contradictory. So, for example, God can't make a square circle, not because God can't do it, but because it can't be done. There are things that are just nonsense or logical impossibilities. It does not limit God's omnipotence. The incarnation is neither. Jesus possesses two natures in one person, Analogously, and um, if, if you know your theology, I really want to avoid a, avoid a particular heresy here. Analogously to the way in which we possess physical and non-physical attributes. And, and the heresy I want to avoid is saying that um, Jesus had a human body and a divine soul. Now, Jesus was fully man, so he had... Everything that is a human like we are accepts in, and he was fully God. So how the two natures are joined in what is called the hypostatic union, which is just a way of theologizing something we cannot fully explain. The hypostatic union of God and man in the one person, Jesus Christ. It's, it's not a contradiction, and again, it's an analogy. So unless you assume materialism to be true, which you have no good reason to assume materialism is true, and everything, including your thoughts and your longings and everything, are just brain chemistry, then we are both material and non-material in one person. We have a body and a soul. And I do believe that the, the soul consciously survives death. So this is analogy, again, just a kind of a way of describing, well, how is it that two distinct and different things can yet be joined in one person? It's, it's not an explanation, it's a description. And again, an analogy, uh, not theology. The incarnation involves divine self-limitation of some attributes such as omnipresence. Uh, there are some that say it limits. Uh, so Jesus decided that he was going to maintain his physical limitation and be in one place at one time. And this is self-willed and chosen. There's some who believe he also limited his omniscience. I'm not sure about that because since Jesus was completely in tune with the Holy Spirit, there is a doctrine in the Trinity that says each person of the Trinity co-inheres or is fully within the other. So Jesus would know by the Spirit all things. And it says, it's not really a full statement in omniscient, but uh, it says, as it is written, Jesus did not need anybody to tell him what people were thinking because he knew what was in a man. Um, the doctrine of the incarnation, um, apparently I didn't hit save, but the doctrine of the incarnation makes sense of the New Testament data in a way that no other explanation does. It just, if, if you try and make up a story about an early legend, uh, it, it makes no sense of what they wrote in the New Testament, and there is no alternate documentation. So the 
incarnation makes sense of the New Testament data. And the doctrine of the incarnation makes sense of the atonement, God's Trinitarian nature, and God's nature as love. So the incarnation, as I said before and I'll conclude with, is one of the two foundational mysteries, the Trinity and the incarnation, by which everything we do as Christians is made sense by. So does anybody have any questions? Yes, Robbie. To your comment about whether Jesus was omniscient uh, in his lifetime on earth. I think he was, but just yeah, let's but, say there's well, debate about that. I have that. A, a point to make about that. You know, and I think it's in Philippians or the, the kenosis where he, right. he, where emptied, he emptied himself. himself. Um, you know, when he was brought to the temple when he was 12 years old, and then he got, you know, separated from his parents and so forth. But when he was going back, the scripture says that he grew in wisdom. Wisdom and, and knowledge and favor with God and with man. That that's pertinent to his human nature that he would grow in wisdom because God doesn't grow in wisdom. He's already there. So, and so Robbie is arguing that because of uh, Jesus's... Uh, Growth and knowledge and, and wisdom that this indicates that part of the self-limitation of the incarnation is uh, God in incarnate form willingly gives up omniscience. Is well, this what no, you're I saying? Say I think in his human nature, he, he wasn't omniscient, but in his divine nature, he was. Sure, but... And at times... But they were in complete, you know, his divine nature and human nature are in complete communication with one another. But you're right. (laughs) And this is... Yeah, see, this gets really complex, and you can see why I might be trying to avoid this, but I don't really (laughs) want to avoid this. But when you look at Jesus, you do not see his divinity. Okay, you see his humanity. But it, it... this is a really bad analogy, but it's the only one I can think of. Like, you don't see the wind, but you see its effects. And again, this is what you see in the Synoptic Gospels. If, if this man were God, what would he do? Well, he'd do miracles. I, I didn't even mention those. I mean, you've got to stop somewhere when you're listing verses. Uh, he forgave sins. He claimed to be sinless. He made these, these verbal claims. Um, uh, he was resurrected from the dead. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection of the dead. So, like I said, in the synoptics, you get more show than tell. If this man really were God, this is what he would do, this is what he would say, and that's what he does, and that's what he says. And Paul, quite contrary to early skeptical uh, scholarship, and John, you get very exalted theological statements about who this man really is, which I think are also revealed and true but in the synoptic but even if you only had the synoptics uh, Matthew Mark and Luke I, I think the you'd have a claim to be God Jesus is harder to understand than to understand the Trinity I mean I think it's got more complexities and thought-provoking well we we, we could take a vote I wouldn't argue on it but I'd just say um, again it's the two foundational mysteries and uh, again I want to be careful about the term mystery it doesn't mean a puzzle to be figured out and it doesn't mean obscurity and vagueness and I believe like I said you can describe the incarnation you can describe the trinity but if you could explain them 
you in effect would be claiming yourself to be the foundation of all reality and existence. And it would be hubris, it wouldn't be scholarship, to claim that your rationality can comprehend and explain the rationality of God. So I, it doesn't bother me that there is an element of inexplicability to the incarnation and the Trinity. Any other questions? Boy, that was a long and involved answer. Yeah, I do have one more question. You know all sure, the Robbie. points you were making in the synoptics about Jesus right. being God. Uh, when he was tempted by Satan, it's in Matthew 4, 7, um, you know, Satan was tempting him, and then Jesus, one of his responses was, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Do you, do you think that that's a, a, a claim by Jesus that he is God? Um, Let's see, it, 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 it says, I think that's in response to, uh, why don't you, he took him up to uh, uh, the pinnacle. pinnacle of the temple and said, why don't you jump down from here? Because it says, you know, he will lift you up, his angels, lets you dash your foot against the stone. So directly, n no, because God, Jesus in that case, if he'd done, taken Satan up on his bed, would be would be putting God to the test, and and so Jesus, and that's another thing we could really get into is is their subordination in the Trinity. Yes, but it's it is functional subordination, not ontological subordination. And if you got a week, I could explain that to you, but well. No, I, actually, it's difficult to understand. Um, but Jesus willingly, uh, the Son willingly subords, subordinates himself to the Father. He, he always does that which his Father wills. Though he is co-equal in divinity in all ways to the Father. So you can see why Trinity and Incarnation make sense. And as a matter of fact, they... Uh, they sort of co-inherit as doctrines. Uh, if if uh, the Trinity isn't true, the Incarnation makes no sense. If the Incarnation were not true, we really could not understand the meaning of the Trinity. Any other questions? So. Well, next week I'm going to wrap... That actually was kind of the culmination. Um, next week I'm sort of going to draw everything together and wrap it up and say the Christian worldview as a total package, makes sense of uh, reality, existence, and who we are better than anything else. Well, thank you. See you all next week.